Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Historically, for African-Americans, education has been a top community and political priority since the enslavement era. At the outset of this history, it was illegal to teach an enslaved person to read and write because it promoted the ability to think and plan. Despite this law, some of the top educators of that time were free Africans who assisted others to read and write. During Reconstruction, African-American leaders decided that the obtaining of a free and appropriate education was a priority and that self-education was necessary because you cannot allow your children to be educated by the enemy. This decision and attitude resulted in the building of educational structures, which were devoted to providing education for the entire African-American community. With the introduction of Jim Crow segregation, the development of African-American learning centers continued as millions of African-Americans were educated in academic knowledge and armed with the ability to confront and survive the racism which our community faced during those times. With the advent of integrated education, this academic priority continued as this pursuit also embraced the struggle for an appropriate and equal education for those who were engaged in desegregated institutions. As a result, the demand for Black studies and history curriculums and the hiring of African-American teachers and administrators were launched. Today, we are now confronted with a robust political struggle to prevent the erasure of African-American history from the entire academic environment. So tonight, we will discuss the contours of this struggle to prevent the destruction of our history in North Carolina and around the country. Our guests, is Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, who is the co-founder and executive director of We Are. We Are is a Durham-based organization which is devoted to the organizing and training of residents to create anti-racist movements and to oppose efforts to erase African-American history. So Dr. Uh, Taylor Bullock, thank you for joining with us this evening. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Joyner, for allowing me to be here and share the space with you all. Okay. Well, let us start out by asking you, first of all, to uh, describe the mission, the goals, and priority of, uh, of WE ARE. Yes. So uh, WE ARE actually is an acronym. Um, it stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. So at We Are, uh, we provide anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. And we use a three-pronged approach 
to disrupt and dismantle systemic racism um, in education and beyond. We offer, by offering summer camps for kids in rising first through fifth grade, professional development for educators and workshops for parents and families. And so we're working to um, ensure that uh, life, that there isn't any more disparate treatment and that life outcomes are not based on race. And so, which is a big goal and mission to be working towards, but that's the work that we do. Well, yeah, just, just for the sake of uh, clarity to our audience, can you just kind of discuss what, what you mean by systemic racism? as opposed to just everyday racism. Right, it's, it's important for people to understand that, uh, you know, racism can happen at an interpersonal level where one person is mistreating another person based on skin color or religion or beliefs. Um, and there's also systemic racism, which means that they, it, historically, there have been laws and policies um, that have been based on race. For example, redlining, um, segregation, Jim Crow, slavery, all of these pieces were a part of policies and laws in our country, which is what you know, critical race theory um, uh, allows us to, to use that framework to understand how these laws and policies are what make up systemic racism. So it's not just interpersonal meanness and mistreatment. It is also laws and policies from government to school policies um, where race has played a role in ca causing harm. Okay. Now, you, you, you are the co-founder of uh, We Are. Can you just kind of describe to us why, why is it that you or how did you get involved uh, with this particular work and this particular uh, mission that uh, led you to uh, help to create uh, this uh, organizational effort? Yeah, so I'll say at the time, um, well, let me back up. I've been paying attention to race and racism since a very early age. I experienced my first memorable act of racism as a five-year-old in kindergarten when I had a white classmate who invited everybody at our table to her birthday party, except for me. I was the only black kid at the table. And so I asked her, well, why did you do that? And she said, well, my dad said black people are not allowed in our home at five. And so something very similar happened again at seven, birthday party situation, white classmate. My dad said that you, Rhonda, can't come because you're black. And so from those instances, I've been, I've been awakening since five, right? So I've been paying attention to race and racism from a very early age and the way racism is set up. Those are not my only encounters with racism, right? As you all probably continue to experience it on a day-to-day -day basis as well. And so around, um, 2014, I had entered into, uh, I'd left teaching at Hillside High School and I had entered uh, into my doctoral program, policy program at UNC Chapel Hill. And at the time I was a mother of a three-year-old and a three-month-old. And if you can recall in 2014, in the fall, at that point, George Zimmerman had been acquitted of murdering uh, Trayvon Martin. Uh, a white male police officer had, had murdered Mike Brown. And the Black Lives Matter movement was just taking off. So it wasn't anywhere near the impact that it's having today. And so me, uh, I, had, I did undergrad at you know, historically white UNC um, and then coming back into that space after leaving historically black hillside, 
it felt like a culture shock, even though I had been in that space before, and a culture shock in that I was experiencing whiteness and racism on a day-to-day -day basis as a PhD student. And so at the time, I was just sitting there thinking like, why are these things happening to me and not my neighbor, they're not happening to my husband, they're not happening to my friends. And so at that point, I was, I was thinking about, you know, being a parent, thinking about the world, my own experiences, and what we were currently in the midst of this highly racialized time in our country, uh, and asking myself, what is God calling me to do in this moment? Um, so I started dreaming of what would it look like to do this work on a systematic level? What would it look like to do this work with children? Because for the George Zimmermans of the world, um, they're older. The older you are, the harder it is to change your mindset and change your beliefs and your behaviors. So I started thinking about what would, it, what would it look like if we started having these types of conversations, this type of learning, an emphasis on anti-racism, an emphasis on healthy racial identity um, construction with children. So the idea first came to me to do the work in the summer camp and using children's books. And then I started thinking, well, if I'm working with children, you need to work with their parents, right? Because um, they're part of this equation. And so then I'm like, well, if you work with children and you work with parents, then you also need to work with their teachers. And that's kind of where that three-pronged approach came from. And so I reached out to my husband, who I'm sure <laughs> looked at me like, woman, you have, we have two small kids. You quit your job. You're now in a PhD program. And now you want to start a nonprofit. <laughs> And then he, of course, agreed to support me in doing this work. And so he's the co-founder and helped me, uh, helped me to get us off the ground. Um, I just saw a need. I felt a calling on my life. Um, and I wanted to do something different. Can you talk about the reception in your community uh, to you starting this, this nonprofit? Um, the reception was a little, it uh, was a little mixed. Uh, some people were like, wow, yes, I want to be on board. Tell me what you want me to do. Um, for some people, you have to put it in, the, in that historical context in 20, 2014, um, saying white supremacy and anti-racism wasn't as much in the public rhetoric as it is now. So at that time, for some people, I seemed very radical, um, crazy, for some, um, and this was in mixed race groups, both black and white folks were like, you're never gonna be in schools. You're never gonna get to do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, first of all, I was in school doing this. So don't tell me, <laughs> it just wasn't as, as uh, organized as this. But, um, you know, it was somewhat mixed. But once we, you know, I reached out to people who I knew already had this lens and this framework. And I was like, hey, I got this idea. Will you help me bring it to fruition? And so everyone that I reached out and asked to be a part of it, they were down. And so it wasn't just me and my husband. It was a community of people, some folks I had just been in my doctoral program. So we were all ready to go. And even when we launched the idea, we had open doors because this was very new for people. And a lot of people knew like, yes, I want this. I wanna be a part of it. Um, we actually didn't start to get uh, pushback, which a lot of people thought would have been there from day one um, until you know the last couple of years when the political rhetoric started to shift. And so um, on the last two years, we've been targeted by high ranking white male politicians in our state. And that has uh, put um, a target on us as an organization and receiving um, a, a white lash, as we call it, uh, with people showing up in our Twitter feed, um, showing up at school board meetings, speaking out against us. 
um, you know, and just taking their warped understanding of critical race theory and projecting it on us as an organization and onto my black body. And so we had to, you know, and again, that's just within the last two years. So we had to launch a, a comeback campaign and I feel like we were successful because the people took their foot off the brake. And so we're no longer under that target, at least publicly, as far as I know. And so we're still, we're back to the basics of what our mission and vision is and we're able to still do that work today. One of the things that I wanted to um, explore with you a little bit, I so first of all, congratulations on you know seeing a need and not just thinking about it and talking about it, but taking some concerted action um, and putting this organization in place. I, I'm intrigued with the notion and completely agree with trying to get these have these conversations as early as possible with young people, because as you noted, as folks get older, they can get very set in their ways. It can be incredibly challenging to um, encourage or support changed views. When you talk about the children and having the children involved, are these spaces where you were having mixed race children, so black and white children having these discussions? And can you talk about, um, how children receive this type of information and deal with these very weighty topics? Yeah, um, so I will say when we first started having our summer camps, we piloted with 15 kids. Um, and so seven um, identified as Black, um, five identified as white, was that 12? And then the three identified as multiracial. And so since then the camp has grown um, and we now have barely predominantly white. Um, and then it's a, we have a large significant population of white children. I mean, excuse me, barely predominantly black. We have a large significant uh, population of white children. And then um, biracial children. We have a very small representation of Latinx children, which we are working on that. Um, but at any rate, these are mixed race spaces. And when I initially started, because in addition to being a critical race scholar, I also do critical whiteness. And so I study white children's racial identity construction. And in having the camps, we made a, a, a concerted effort to target white parents and families because we wanted them to be in the space because they need to have this learning as well. Um, and so we, uh, at one point we had the majority white children, which is not, that was never the goal. And so um, we had to make a shift um, to make sure that we don't lose our black audience. Um, at any rate, and in these spaces, having these conversations with children, we don't always go in to just talk straight about racism because we're educators and we understand how young people learn. And so we build up to it like over the course of five days. So we initially talk with them about identity and names and the importance of learning to pronounce people's names correctly. So this is an easy entry point for kids. And again, we're using children's books that identify with like these different themes to help make it concrete. Um, so for example, we use a book called My Name is Sungol. Um, and Sungol is a refugee from Sudan. And when he comes to America, people rename him and pick on his name. We know as adults that that's connected to historical racism, right? Renaming people, saying your name is too hard to pronounce. At any rate, we go through activities and we start first with identity. And then we move up to um, having a concrete example of what racism is by day three in the camp. 
And so when we're giving, where we ask kids questions, what do you know about this word racism? We write down what they call out. Uh, we give them a definition. And for children, we keep it very simple. Um, uh, treating someone unfairly based on the color of their skin. Very simple, because remember we're talking about first to fifth graders. And so we read a book where that explicitly happens to a black person. So we can, now we have a concrete example of a black person being mistreated um, and discriminated against, right? Because they're black. And what happens with children is they are in complete and utter disbelief that folks would do this to someone. And it's, it's beautiful to witness, like if there's ever a point to talk about an anti-racism camp, something that's beautiful. But I say it's beautiful because we've been desensitized to racism as adults, but the children are not. And so when we share that story and we tell them that, that not only did that happen in the past, because now some of them think it was back in the day, Martin Luther King freed the slaves and now everybody, like that's their concept of how all this, and now we're good. And then we tell them, you know, by day four, we, we actually talk about systemic racism and Black Lives Matter movement to help them understand it wasn't, unfortunately, it's not just back in the day, this stuff is still happening now. They just cannot believe it. They're like, who are these people doing these horrible things? And I'm like, you're right. This does not make sense. And so we, they keep asking us, okay, you told me they did it because of this, but why? But why would you not want they're looking at their friends, a white child will look at a black child and say, so we couldn't be in the same classroom together. And I was like, no, and that was the law. So that's how you can teach children about systemic racism. Yeah, that was the law. The law said that y'all could not be in the same room. And they were like, I have never seen anything like this in my life. You know, and they're just like, this is horrible. Um, you know, and, and in some ways it, it generates sadness. And in some, for, you know, in some ways it, it, it generates shame too, because some people, if you're white, you share the same color of skin as the people who are causing this harm. And so what we do is we work through those emotions and we name them. And we have a conversation about them because those are humanizing emotions. And those are, and we, those are all emotions that we should be wrestling with as we're learning about this tough topic. And so we support children through that learning. Um, and, and try to, as best we can, to keep answering their why question, because to them, racism does not make sense at all. And it should not, because it is an abomination. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, who is the uh, co-founder and executive director of WeGall, uh, and that is the uh, anti-racism training effort uh, here in, uh, in Durham. We're going to uh, continue uh, this uh, discussion with her, but we're going to take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. 
We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue this discussion with Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, uh, who is the uh, co-founder and executive director of, uh, of We All. And when we took our break, uh, she was talking about uh, her work with uh, young children uh, who were being introduced to this notion of uh, racism and, and its impact. Uh, and, and my question immediately was that, um, how do you recruit uh, these kids? Uh, because I would think that the recruiting process to find uh, white parents who will allow their uh, children to be exposed to this type of education is somewhat different than uh, it is reaching out to African-Americans and uh, or racial uh, minority and, and to allow their children to, to, to be involved. So. Can you kind of you know help us to understand because that's a big block uh, right. that's uh, that's there and uh, if you don't have the cooperation and interaction with the uh, parents then uh, you you don't get to the kids and if they you don't have their understanding then you get a block and pushback on what it is that you're trying to uh, impart uh, to them so can you just spend a couple of minutes just kind of talking about this uh, recruitment process and the reception that you get uh, yeah. from uh, those, uh, those parents. So one of the things I think that helped uh, us getting started was that I had taught uh, in, in Durham at Hillside for almost 10 years. So I was building trust in the community. Um, and so coming back, you know, some nonprofits will go and do work in somebody else's community, but I came back to my home relatively, even though I'm from Goldston, North Carolina, like I put 10 years in and Durham public school school system. So I, I have, I have deep roots um, in Durham. And so part of it was at least that first year when we piloted, I, I knew almost everybody who was there. So um, just being, being an educator and being out in the community, my church is here. So I knew people who were there. Um, but then after that, it was word of mouth. Um, it was word of mouth. And then we were being invited um, to different schools, PTA meetings. 
And mm-hmm. historically, PTAs, uh, even in a, a school district like um, Durham, uh, are largely staffed by white parents, white women, by and large. And so I was basically in these white spaces, talking about the work, talking about the need to have these conversations. So I have a presentation called Race-Based Conversations with Kids Matter. And so I was doing that presentation probably two to three times a month with PTA settings. And then in the midst of that conversation, I would share about the camp. And so um, that's pretty much how we, you know, started after that first year getting, building the interest. Um, And then after that, it kind of, I don't, we don't even have to advertise at this point. Like we now have a wait list Um, that, that year, after the first year of us, after that pilot year, and then I pretty much did a year of doing that race-based conversations presentation. When we went live with registration, at that point, we had added the third through fifth grade. So we just started with first to second. Remember, it was 15 that first year. That next year, we added third through fifth grade. And both of the camps sold out within 10 minutes of registration going live. Registration... Um, <laughs> 10 minutes might be a, a, a stretch. I do like to move in truth. So I might need, to, there might be a hyperbole. I need to fact check myself, but it sold out very quickly. We had a wait list. Um, and so we went from like 15 kids to about 25 in the first and second grade. And then the third through fifth grade camp, we had about 35. And so, and we had a wait list of 30. At this point, I think this year, we might've had a wait list of 45 families. And so, and that's with taking 130 some kids over the course of four camps. So now the word is out that this is a good space for your child, a safe space for your child to come and learn. And so, um, you know, people, people sign up for it. We go live every year on February 1 in conjunction with the Greensboro sit-ins. And so, um, you know, that's, that's how, that's how we roll. And by and large people, and we, we do a, a family orientation prior to camp because we don't want someone to think that they're sending their child to daycare. We don't want someone to think that they're sending their child to a place where they're going to have lots of fun. We have fun <laughs> at our camp, but that's not why you send your child to a we are summer camp. And so we um, orient the families prior to, and we have very, you know, uh, stern conversations, sincere conversations, like your child will come here and have fun, but that's not the purpose. Like we want you to understand, we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about racism and we're going to support your child through learning uh, through that process. We're going to check in with their emotions. We're going to, we're going to do fun things, um, but your child might cry in this camp. Your child might come home and be sad or angry. And so we talk with parents about how to handle those situations and how to check in with their child and let them know that we're doing the same thing during the day. Like this is a very intentional space that we're creating to help them, but then to also help them understand about activism and that they're here for a reason and their parents are trying to show up differently in the world. And so by and large, you know, people choose to come to that space. No one is required. Um, Some families pay, some families come on a full or partial scholarship. And that doesn't mean that everyone really understands what they're getting themselves into. For example, one year we had um, a white parent who took issue with, so we do caucusing with children, racial caucusing. So we have a caucus for kids who identify as kids of color. We have a caucus for kids who identify as white. And we have co-facilitators that align with those, uh, that binary to serve in those roles in those separate groups. Um, 
And so in the caucus space, the white caucus talked about racism and they talked about power. And this is a third to fifth grade camp. So it's a little different. And they talked about how, you know, black people and people of color, we can be bigoted, we can be biased, but we can't be racist because of the historical connection to power. We don't have that. And so the white parent um, also had a biracial child. So the biracial child had one experience that day and the white child, so the siblings were in camp together and the white child had another experience and the parent took issue that the white child heard that in essence, their brother couldn't be racist. Um, so the parent took issue with that. They did not like our understanding of systemic racism and brought that to our concern. I tried my best to explain, you know, the situation and to explain like you're raising a black child your child presents as, presents as black. And these are, you know, difficult, these are conversations rooted in truth and conversations that, you know, as a parent, you, you get to make the decision of whether or not you want to have it. It's not, it's not my job to judge the parent. I tried to meet their concern. Um, at the end of that conversation, the parent decided to remove both of their children from the camp. Um, that's just one example, but over the years, that's the only time that has ever happened. Everybody else, whether it is causing some discomfort or not, by and large, the white parents who are there, they push through it and they're having conversations that they never had with their kids. Black families are having conversations and finding their child's identity being affirmed in ways that their child's identity is not affirmed in traditional school settings. Black children are coming and finding community. Um, biracial children, our third largest demographic is biracial children. They are coming um, and finding other mixed race families and children and seeing themselves and sharing their experiences. And it really is like this. Um, we are we intentionally center black and brown children, black and brown authors and the books that we choose, black and brown voices and experiences. And so these black and brown children are coming and when they caucus, it's like healing. Because some of these children, even in first and second grade, are having racialized experiences that they didn't know that's what it was until they got in that space and heard each other talking about the playground. That's where a lot of racial harm um, is happening and it's on the playground. And they start, where well, they're like, wait, that happened to me too. And so it's really, um, you know, while we did have that one incident over the course of what, like six or seven years, by and large, children are coming there. They're, they are incident in discomfort. Some are sitting in anger, some are sitting in sadness, some sitting in shame, but we work through it and we move towards, okay, what are we gonna do with this? How are we gonna be activists in our school communities? How are we gonna be activists in our homes? How are we gonna stand up for racial equity and anti-racism, right? So that's kind of, um, you know, what that recruitment and what those experiences look like uh, for, for our kids. So we know you, have been following with uh, great interest and dismay, of course, the efforts on the part of some to try and uh, remove education focusing on Black experiences. Um, and, and the narrative is uh, there are white families that don't want their children to feel discomfort, to feel shame. Um, and so we're going to push it under the rug. We don't want to expose uh, this uncomfortable history. What do you, well, first of all, what is your reaction to these conversations that are taking place in many states and in many 
you know, localities. And what do you say about, or what can you share for parents who don't have a full understanding of why this is so important? Like, how would you explain why we, we in fact, do want our children to be exposed to the history, the uncomfortable history of this country as it relates to race? One of the things that I like to uh, push back at people is whose pain are we prioritizing? Whose pain are we prioritizing when we say we don't want kids to feel discomfort and we don't want kids to feel shame? It's not black and brown children. It's not the victims of racism. We are not prioritizing their experiences when we say, in essence, we don't want white children, white parents saying they don't want their white children to experience discomfort. When you zoom out on a bigger screen, a white child's discomfort is not greater and it's not equivalent to black parents' fear that their children will not live, will not make it home, can't be pulled over by the police and, and live to tell about it. These are not equivalent experiences. These are not equivalent um, discomforts. <laughs> and so with that in mind, it's important for people to understand that black and brown children are victims of racism as early as three years old, that white children, um, and there are studies, so this is not my opinion, there are studies on this. One book is called The First R, How Kids Learn Race and Racism. Um, and it's a study based in a pre-K setting. And with, and this not, this is one study, but there's multiple studies about how um, white children are perpetuating harm. Um, you do not have to teach a white child to have hatred in their heart. Like they can make sense of the world around them and infer that my white skin is better than someone who is darker. And then in, in what this looks like in pre-K is you can't play with me on the swings because you have brown skin. More, more likely little children will say brown and peach. They don't really say black and white because what they see is not black and white, they see brown and peach. And so they will, they will um, use practices of inclusion and exclusion in, in, in their free play. And so, um, so we have this happening to young, you know, black children at three years old, but when you're in school at five, six, and seven, we don't want white kids to be uncomfortable learning that these harmful things happen. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not prioritizing the victims. And I think we need to center the most marginalized community members in thinking about how we have this conversation. And when we, ha we have to decenter whiteness, which critical race theory calls us to do and to center the voices and experiences of our marginalized communities. And so now, how do we have these conversations in age appropriate ways that takes into account the stories of harm that black and brown children are having in schools and then move from there? That should be our starting point. That's where the conversation and the education begins. Now, I know that you're doing some uh, work with uh both teachers and parents who are concerned about efforts to erase uh, African-American history or the teaching of, uh, of uh, CRT-related uh, courses and uh, engaging in that type of curriculum. Uh, can you just kind of explain to the audience uh, what is it that you're doing in, uh, in that regard and what has been uh, the uh, response? Uh, to uh, to your efforts uh, thus far. 
So we have been trying to educate, really educate and, and provide a counter narrative what, to what the public rhetoric is saying critical race theory is. Um, and we've been talking about how it's rooted in laws and policies and how it's rooted in truth telling. And that, and, and just normalizing and trying to take up space to share that, um, you know, we want children to learn the truth. We want children to be critical thinkers. We want teachers to have the freedom to teach the truth. Um, and we're, we're on the verge of trying to organize our parents because right now we have the voices that are taking up the most space are the anti-truth teller, white supremacist voices. They're the ones showing up at the school board meetings, getting immediate attention, and they're taking up a lot of space. And so, um, but they're not the majority. They because they have so much space and access, they present as the majority. But even um, you know the the Center for Racial Equity um, in Education Creed did a study that said across political groups, across racial groups, most people actually believe that African American history should be taught in schools. So Creed did that study recently here in North Carolina, and but you. Most people wouldn't believe that based off of how much space the anti-truth tellers get to take up. So it's inflated self-importance. It's an over and misrepresentation of the actual amount of people who believe that. And so we're trying to help people take up more space and to put the counter narrative out there and organizing our educators, organizing our parents to say, actually, we value truth telling. We value critical thinking, we value social emotional learning and, and creating inclusive learning environments. And so we, those voices have got to show up at the school board meetings, have got to show up at the press conferences and show that no, we're here. And this is the type of education and learning that we want uh, in our schools and in our communities. And so we, we did a, a panel on critical race theory um, um, about a year and a half ago, about a year ago, um, sharing what it is and how it can be used. If you find it in a school, you found a good thing. <laughs> and and it if, if I find a school where that's the framework, I wanna take my kid out of where they are right now. And that's where I wanna put them like, you know, pushing back that this is something harmful um, because it's not. And uh, that's that's what we're doing. And we're, we're you know, aligning our efforts with, um, the African-American Policy Forum, where Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who's like the mother of critical race theory, um, at where they're leading efforts and national efforts of like organizing and pushing back. And, and so we're trying to, to not only do this work here locally, but uh, align ourselves with other national movements because that's how we take up more space. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And our guest this evening is Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock. She is the co-founder and executive director of We Are, a Durham-based organization that provides anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. 
As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. We've been talking this hour with Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock. She is the co-founder and executive director of We Are, which stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. It is a Durham-based organization that provides anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. Dr. Taylor Bullock, um, you mentioned right before that last break that you are um, thinking about your impact beyond just the Durham community. And the work that you're doing is so incredibly important. I'm reflecting back on when my children were in grade school and middle school and high school, and I would have loved for them to have been able to be a part of an organization like yours, or and even myself as a, as a youngster when you were sharing, you know, your first exposure to racism, right? As a a woman who is in her fifties, I have those same exact experiences. My children, I mean, it's something that is very common for, you know, most of us. Um, You are, you mentioned that the summer camp is able to house about 130 some odd children right, who are getting an amazing experience. And I can't help but think about all of the other children who could and families who could benefit from this. So can you share with us um, what your thoughts are about the impact that you're making and what your thoughts are about expanding that impact out? Not, Not that we, not that I, you know, don't want you to continue serving those incredibly lucky children and families and teachers. There's so much work to be done. Um, What are your thoughts about where your organization make and how it might continue to grow? Yeah, so we've, um, I'm excited about the future and nervous at the same time. Um, Because, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stretching and growing pains that happens with getting larger. Um, And so, but we want, I definitely want to, I will say that um, we were the beneficiaries of a lot of charitable giving in 2020, if you all recall in 2020, we had um, the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, um, George Floyd. I mean, it was just a lot back to back to back um, happening in our community. <clears throat> and, and, you know, the world came together. And so um, in 2020, because of that, that generate that, um, you know, that giving, we were able to move from a one person led organization to four. And so we hired people and that is that has definitely helped us. So I'm not I don't do this work. I've never done it by myself. I've just been the visionary for it, the curator. Um, but we now have a team of people who are, who are doing the work behind the scenes with this programming. And now we understand um, 
there's more to do and there's more growth to be had. Like this work needs to be happening on a, on a systematic level, so to speak. And so we will be working with a strategic planner uh, to help us bring in that third party perspective. Like I think we've done well so far, but we, now we wanna take it to the next level. What does it look like to um, move beyond uh, the isolated one-offs that we've had outside of the state. We've, we've actually become uh, international with, with the help of Zoom. So from Brazil to the UK, um, and we've, we've been all over, all over, virtually all over the United States, but it's one-offs and they're isolated. It's not a systemic type of impact, right? And so uh, what we feel now is that bringing in a strategic planner will help us to have more of a systemic impact and a broader intentional reach outside of, uh, within North Carolina and then outside, right? And um, I think we are, doesn't have to be all over the place doing these things, but we can train the people, go to where they are, they can come to us so that we can train them in the critical race theory framework to now go back to their communities because, the people in the community um, are the people who need to be doing that work, right? And they and there's people in different parts of the country who have the passion, but maybe they just need the idea or maybe they need to see how it's working here with us in, in Durham and now take it back. So we don't need to be all over the place, but maybe at least sharing our framework and how we're doing this, this work so that um, you know folks who are local to their communities are the ones with the connections and the relationships um, to build in similar ways that we are as building here in Durham. So I'm very excited uh, about the possibilities of that type of growth, not just for growth's sake, right? But because of what we're actually doing. <laughs> Yeah, we're not out here to make money. We're out here for liberation. We're out here to disrupt uh, white supremacy. We're out here to, to, to be our healthy selves, to, to live with dignity and pride in a racially inclusive um, community. And, and, and that's, what, that's what's exciting, not the growth, but the potential of what life could be, right? Um, or, or just be, you know, Derek Bell, and um, he talks about who's also, you know, a critical race scholar. And um, she remembers mom just talking about, you know, I'm just messing with people. I'm just, mom said, I'm just messing with white people. Like I know some things won't change, but some things can, right? And so we're gonna do what we can while we can. I have no illusion that we're about to end racism. No, but can we make life a little bit different, a little bit better, a little more conscious while we're here, while my time is here, then then that um, gives me hope. And, um, and that's the work that I'm gonna do until, until I have joined the ancestors or God has said, actually, this is not your work anymore. Now, this is where you are. You know, uh, we, 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 are, we are aware of the legislative efforts that are uh, underway uh, to, uh, in many instances, erase this teaching of uh, Black history, but certainly to uh, curtail uh, anti-racist uh, training in that forum. Uh, but the, the, the larger pool of promoting uh, these uh, racist ideas uh, are manifested at the school board level uh, because they uh, set policy in every local community as to what is to be taught uh, in that uh, school district and how it is to uh, be taught. So uh, a big part of the effort to deal with uh, anti-racism work is making connection with and helping to uh, change the hearts and minds of those people who are making the policy. What efforts have 
uh, we are been uh, engaged in uh, in that uh, in that direction. And, and, and of course, Durham is is different uh, because it is uh, a, a minority focused uh, school board. Uh, but uh, when you go to Wake and Orange and uh, Person and Chatham and every other county uh, in the state, you'll find uh, the status quo uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in place. So, uh, how how do you get to them to uh, help them to better understand exactly how this uh, uh, this anti-racism work uh, can uh, be accomplished. Yeah, well, let me first add that Steve Bannon, who was at one point the right-hand man of our previously outgoing <laughs> president, Steve Bannon said that the road back to the White House is through school boards. And if you notice, there's been, a, there's been this coordinated systemic effort to run um, conservative leaning white supremacist for local school boards, right? And, and, and in the past, um, it wasn't as, uh, or at least in my history, it wasn't as coordinated as it has been within these last few years. It's very, and it's in the media way more than, you know, than it had been in the past. So there's definitely this coordinated effort to put um, conservative leaning anti-truth telling voices on uh, school boards to get control of the curriculum and to, to take out and erase the contributions of African-American people. And so for, for one, like we are, um, we have spoken at several different school board meetings. Uh, we've been in Wake County, we've been in Durham, we've also been in Chatham. And um, what I think is important is trying to educate people who are on the ground in those places. So we're building relationships um, with other activists in different communities and helping to encourage people to speak up. I will also say that even in Durham, while our board is uh, progressive presenting, (laughs) um, we got our own problems too. And every parent and educator in our district is not on the same page, right? At the same time, our board is in a place of privilege in that um, their seats are relatively safe. And we need to be doing more to set the example, to be a model, because the attacks, we're not under the same attacks and pressure as a Wake County or a Person County or Orange County, Orange County right? Get in the business at school board meetings. Um, And so I feel like in honesty, our school district, and this is not something that I haven't already said to them. (laughs) They know me very well. Um, We have to do more. We're actually not doing enough because we're sitting in a a safe seat. And in this safe seat, you got to take some calculated risk that our neighbors can't take. And we got to set the tone and we got to set the example. In Durham, we're going to do this and be unapologetic about it because we have the freedom to do that in ways that our neighboring counties do not. And so at we are at this iteration, at this juncture, we're hoping to um, pivot a little bit to be putting more pressure on our local school district here in Durham to, to be the leader um, and to um, take on the attitude of come what might. <laughs> We're going to say, no, we believe in culturally inclusive schools. We believe in teaching the truth. We believe in um, LGBTQ students having a safe learning experience along with our families. We believe in black children coming to school and not being disproportionately suspended. Like we believe in immigrant families and um, English um, as a second language families. Like 
we we have to be more vocal and, and as a school district, we have to take up more space and lead um, in ways that it's much more difficult for, for other counties to lead. So we talked a, a lot about the education that you provide the students and your last comment about the school boards and how there's this coordinated effort to get control of the school boards, um, the conservative leaning, non-truth telling folks wanting to control that. And this leads into my question about what type of education do you provide the parents? And, and I would assume that part of the education and advocacy that you encourage of them is to become involved in maybe local politics. Can you share with us um, the, the information that you share with the parents and the encouragement and support you provide them? Right now, the, the previous support that we have provided them is one, navigating race-based conversations with their children. We're helping them to have, we do a workshop with them called Speak Up. And this is when like your child has said something or you're in a school setting and, and uh, someone else has some, said something to you or in any space, like giving you the language to speak up, like doing role plays. Um, and then we've also done implicit bias training with parents. So they're giving them like the lens, the perspective to think about their own racial identity in addition to the racial identity of their children, their community, their teachers, their children's friends, their own friends. That's pretty much where we have been. Right now we are is at another pivot point where we want to start organizing our parents <clears throat> that we've already been working with over the course of the last few years to now turn their eyes towards showing up at school board meetings. We had not previously done that, but this is where we're at a pivotal point where um, over the last two years, because of the anti-CRT rhetoric, we have seen participation in our educator events decline. So for example, we have a three-day educator summer institute that we've been running since 2017. Our numbers have ranged from like 50 to 65 consistently over the summers. Uh, pandemic year, even in a virtual space, we had about 50 people on Zoom. Um, last two summers, we've had about 20. Last summer, I think it was 16. And so even the number of interactions that we've had with schools has decreased drastically. The one target area that has not gone down for us is the interest in our summer camps. The parents are still coming and so, as, a, as the leader of our organization, I said, well, let's, maybe we don't focus on trying to get more teachers to come. Maybe we focus on where there has not been a drop-off and look at our parents. How can we organize our parents? Because there's no convincing. They, they don't have the same barriers that a school, a teacher might have because they have to get approval to come. Principals getting, you get a little shaky, or get a little nervous, rightfully so, right? Um, school superintendents getting nervous and, th and there's legislation coming down about how they can spend their money. And one of the um, policies that's coming out, it says you can't contract um, or create a contract with a, an organization that does anti-racism work. Like that's the type of language that's in some of these policies, right? So their hands are, you know, tied or not, you can also decide to push back, but that's another story. Um, so we're like, let's work with the parents. And so we haven't done that type of organizing yet, but it is 
on the periphery. Like we're, we're moving towards that way of like, let's look at these parents who have been engaged throughout consistently. There has not been a drop off in their engagement. They're showing up, they're still staying on wait lists, trying to get into camp. So now let's harness some of that parent energy because that's we haven't seen that parent energy um, on the larger scale in the media. All we're seeing are predominantly white parents showing up saying, I don't want my kids to learn about black history. I don't want my kids learning about diverse family structures. I don't want my kids reading books about X, Y, and Z. And so we want to help organize our parent energy to be a counter narrative to those voices. We just haven't done it yet. <laughs> now you have an upcoming uh, Institute for, for teachers. Uh, as well, I don't, I don't recall. I think that's in May, or is that in June? That's, that's going to be the last week in June. We have what we call a three-day educator summer institute. Right. And so, now, the what, what what kind of reaction or responses are you receiving from African American uh, teachers who might find themselves uh, in this uh, space where they're dealing with? African-American history, or they might be uh, the target of efforts to de-escalate uh, the kind of uh, work that they're doing. And our uh, time is running out, so if you could chop this one. Yeah, we have been in conversation with educators in rural counties who are um, having their lesson plans are being pulled and reviewed. Um, children, predominantly uh, white children, are reporting them to their principal leadership. Um, and, you know, it's just pressure being put on them. Depending on where you are, if you're, depending on what part of the state you're in, you can keep doing what you've been doing, which is, you know, teaching with a culturally responsive lens and bringing in all of African-American history and Latinx history. And, you know, and in other parts of our state where um, there's a higher percentage of anti-truth telling people, you know, their their jobs are more at stake. They're nervous. Now they're trying to change what they're teaching because they don't want to be fired. Like they're rooted in their communities and they're trying to do the work. And so that's a real fear. It is a real fear, and I don't, you know, I don't want to downplay it, especially as, you know, uh, people have to make a living, and that's why I think it's important that we put other systems in place to support educators so that they can keep leading with truth-telling, leading with liberation, um, and, and keep their jobs, right, and, and hopefully that's what we'll be able to do with, with getting this law clinic off the ground, too. Well, all right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Rhonda Taylor Bullock, who is the co-founder and executive director of We Are, which stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. And We Are is a Durham-based organization that provides anti-racism training for children, families, and educators. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you have enjoyed the show, that you've learned something, and that you will uh, do some research and learn more about We Are and support the organization. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe. Thank you.